difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two very different movies about protagonists with anterior grade amnesia. One's a cartoon fish and one's a tattooed man, but both of them have learned to live with memory loss. Keith, I have a Polaroid of you here that says I should not believe your lies, but it also says I should ask you to tell us what we're up to this week. Yeah, I'm going to burn that as soon as you aren't looking, Tasha. <laughs> this week, we are inspired by the new animated Pixar movie, Finding Dory, a sequel to one of the studio's all-time biggest hits. And like 2003's Finding Nemo, it's the story of a fish crossing the ocean looking for a missing family. But this time around, the protagonist is Ellen DeGeneres' fish character, Dory, who's incapable of making new memories and keeps losing track of what she's doing. The conceit of the film is inescapably similar to Christopher Nolan's breakthrough feature, Memento, about a man who also can't make new memories, which doesn't stop him from trying to hunt down his wife's murderer. Nolan's innovative script tells the story backward, so we know how it ends long before we find out how to interpret that ending. It's more formally complicated and challenging than Finding Dory, which is more directly aimed at kids, even than most Pixar films. But both movies use the memory conceit to hide information from the audience until the story needs it, and both use it as a theme that lets the filmmakers think about identity and the stories we tell ourselves to survive. Right, Tasha? Tasha? Hmm? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot what we were talking about. Uh, I just need to look at my tattoos for a sec. Okay, this one says host two-part podcast. Oh, crap. This one says be less flippant about beloved movies. <laughs> it's hard not to make the occasional memory joke when dealing with two films that are sometimes very wry and very funny about what their main characters can and can't remember. But rest assured, we're also going to look at the dramatic side of these stories and how they move our emotions while they're engaging our intellects. We all need mirrors to remind ourselves who we are, and sometimes films serve as that mirror. Natalie. You don't remember me. I'm sorry, I should have explained. I have this... You did explain, Lenny. Please call me Leonard. My wife called me Lenny. Yeah, I know, you told me. Well, then I probably told you how much I hated it. Yeah. Do you mind taking your glasses off? It's hard for me to... Thanks. So you have information for me? Is that what your little note says? Yeah. Must be tough living your life according to a couple of scraps of paper. You mix your laundry list with your grocery list and you'll end up eating your underwear for breakfast. I guess that's why you have those freaky tattoos. Yeah, it's tough. It's almost impossible. Look, I'm sorry I don't remember you. It's nothing personal. I do have information for you. You gave me a license plate number. Had my friend at DMV trace it. Guess what name came up? John Edward Gamel, John G. Do you know him? No. But his face on his driver's license looked really familiar. I think he, I think he's been in the bar, maybe. Here's a copy of his license, his registration, photo and all. Are you sure you want this? Have I told you what this man did? Yeah. Well, then you shouldn't have to ask. But even if you get revenge, you're not gonna remember it. You're not even gonna know that it happened. My wife deserves vengeance. Doesn't make any difference whether I know about it. Just because there are things I don't remember doesn't make my actions meaningless. The world doesn't just disappear when you close your eyes, does it? 
Back in the late 1990s, Christopher Nolan and his brother Jonathan were on a road trip together when Jonathan told Christopher about a short story he was working on. It was about a man named Earl who had enterograde amnesia and kept himself going with post-it notes around his hospital room, giving himself not just a schedule but a purpose in life. Nolan says he immediately wanted to make a film version of the story, and just like his brother, he wanted to tell it in first person. That turned out to be a complicated process. Memento is the story of a man who can't make new memories and responds by defining himself in five-minute increments, consciously manipulating the future version of himself by leading himself clues that he knows will lead to specific ends. It's the story of an amateur detective named Leonard trying to track down the man who murdered his wife without any knowledge of the things he's already done in pursuit of that goal. Nolan uses a variety of camera tricks to get us into Leonard's head, but above all, he tells the story backwards so the audience can't leap too far ahead of Leonard. In the movie, the present is all Leonard has, but the past is what makes it surprising and important. And we're on a journey that keeps us with him, even as we're going somewhere he can't go and learning things about him he'll never know. Memento wasn't Nolan's first film. In 1998, he released the indie movie Following, one of the classic indie success stories. It was made for $6,000 by shooting with volunteers on weekends when they were available, working mostly with available light, and shooting in friends' homes. But the film, which also has a non-linear structure and noir roots, won awards at festivals and picked up a sizable critical following. In retrospect, it looks like an inexpensive practice run for Memento and for the rest of Nolan's career, not just in terms of letting Nolan learn the filmmaking process, but in terms of figuring out whether audiences can keep up with a film story they have to mentally assemble like a puzzle. And Memento is a pretty elaborate puzzle. Back in its day, several prominent critics, including Roger Ebert, praised it, but said it had no rewatch value because viewers are meant to be confused and understanding everything that's going on makes the film unsatisfying. An awful lot of cinephiles would disagree at this point, given how often we've all returned to Memento, trying to unpack all the little threads going on, and especially the question of who knew what at what point in time, and whether we can rely on anything they say. There's a visceral pleasure to Memento that comes from its many big surprises, but it's an intellectual film as well, one where viewers have to juggle all the new facts as they emerge to contradict the old facts. Leonard prides himself on being able to see the truth in people's faces, but as we watch the movie and see how far that assessment is from the truth, we wind up in his shoes again, as we try to decide whether we can discern what's really going on in a story where literally everyone is lying. So guys, what do you normally remember about Memento from viewing to viewing? What sticks with you and what do you have to rediscover because you forget every time you watch it? I hadn't seen this film in probably a decade at this point, maybe even a little longer. And I'm naturally forgetful, uh, even <laughs> of movies I really like. Uh, so my, my Dory-like qualities allow me to, <laughs> to, 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 to re- rediscover stuff as I watch it. But um, I always forget the end game. I mean, for which is weird to say about a movie that starts at the end and you know where it's going. But I always forget why we're in spoiler spoiler-friendly territory at this point. I mean, absolutely yes, everything about this movie is a spoiler. Yeah. Like, the whole movie is just a series of, of spoilers. So we're going to have to talk about the ending, which is the beginning. Right. So, yeah. I, I can't imagine anyone would listen to this podcast without having watched Memento. Like, yeah. that, there can be you no You cannot listen to this podcast if you've not seen Memento. Uh, I, remember, I remember when he kills Teddy, it's not what we think it is, but I forget exactly what it is. So it was a pleasure. To, in that sense, it was kind of a pleasure to forget it and remember it again. Keith, I'm glad to hear you say you 
you ha- uh, didn't really remember a lot of the specifics because I, I didn't either. It's I haven't seen this since 2001. I saw it in a class oh, in my wow. freshman year in college, and oh. I wrote a paper on it that was so good that the teacher read it aloud to the class. Wow. So that, well, you that, better bring it. This yeah, is putting pressure on you. That sounds like something worth I, remembering. I, I did try to find it, but it is lost to the zip drives of time at this point. But like I obviously remember the structure, and I remember that like no one's motivations are what they say they are, but the actual specifics of who was interacting with whom had been completely lost to my memory, Dory. Like it was like watching it for the first time. So that was kind of a pleasure. I remember the griminess of it too. And uh, sort of just the weird sadness to it as well. Uh, But also uh, the scene I always remember is, I think it's one, I can remember this, that you referenced in your review way back in the day, which was, am I chasing him or is he chasing me? (laughs) (laughs) Which is is such a great moment in this movie. Yeah, we we were all kind of shaking our heads, Tasha, when you were uh, talking about Ebert's review, uh, saying it had no rewatch value because I... Like, I think this is a quintessential rewatch movie because even once you know how the story unfolds, like you can go back and appreciate the structure and the puzzle aspect of it. And you can get you can glean new things from those performances once you know what those characters motivations really are. And you can like I this was the first time I noticed that the transition from black and white to color and where that happens and how important a moment that is. And that is something that when you are caught up in the story and in the revelation of this mystery, it's easy to miss. So there's a lot of different levels to appreciate this movie on. And I think rewatching it is essential to getting to all those levels. Yeah. I have to say this because anytime uh, Roger Ebert, you know, he would occasionally get things terribly wrong. We would say, Oh Roger. (laughs) So I'm going to say, I'm going to say this about Memento. Oh Roger. So wrong, uh, like absolutely wrong about this about this movie because I, I think that there are other puzzle movies, you know, something like The Usual Suspects, for example, which I think is a reasonably entertaining movie on repeat viewing. But once you get past the question of who is Kaiser Soze, I don't think there's a whole lot to chew on with that film. Uh, Tasha's giving me a look. Just, just, just pretend it's something. Oh, Roger. You... Oh, ro- oh, Scott. <laughs> oh, Scott. Um, but Memento, uh, uh, for me, play keeps on paying. Dividends. I mean, for one, the construction of it is, as Genevieve mentions, both both, which is both reverse chronological and chronological, and uh, you know that keeps you disoriented the entire movie. So each new viewing at least brings you closer to comprehending how all the pieces fit together. Because this is a movie that is way out in front of the audience, uh, which I love. Beyond that, though, I think there's an emotional grip to Memento that's so powerful. Once you start sorting it out, when you when you think about what the film is saying about how we remember and how we process loss. And how we just you know get through the day. I think it becomes a very moving film. You know, quite apart from it being a, you know an interesting thing to puzzle over intellectually. I mean, it's also about how we lie to ourselves. Yes. and I, I like that's one of the really emotional things about it is that there's so much emotion in the movie coming out of the protagonist, and then when you realize what he's done to like consciously to create that that notion, mm-hmm. like to create that emotion in himself, it becomes even more powerful because you, you realize he's basically manipulating himself into feeling all this pain yeah. i mean i i think keith had a right when he said it's a grimy movie it's visually a grimy movie that takes place in like a grimy little town but it's also emotionally and morally just such a grimy little movie that's a, that's a really good twist too on top of it because you you know based on his condition that he can be manipulated and you see him being manipulated but but that additional revelation that he is manipulating himself i think just some fairly profound truths about you know human nature 
that that I think gives gives the film again, you know, such more profundity than its, uh, you know, I guess gimmicky conceit would have you expect. If you take it all the way, it's sort of the sad conclusion is that the best you can hope for is lie to yourself in a way that can manipulate yourself into being the person you need to be to accomplish what you want to accomplish. I mean, it's it's a sad takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> And I also kind of appreciate what it says about the futility of revenge, because I've, I've said it before on this podcast, that like I find revenge tales to be very boring. I, I just I'm kind of over it as a character motivation. So I like that this uh, movie really plays with the idea of what revenge is and what it does to you and what happens after you attain it. Apparently, I've seen this movie a lot more than some people at the table, which surprises me because I'm not a big movie rewatcher. But uh, the thing that sticks most with me from viewing to viewing is, is am I chasing this guy? No, he's chasing me. <laughs> but also just the scene with uh, with Carrie Ann Moss as Natalie, where, Ooh, yeah, that's oh, a good yeah, one. That's where she just openly tells her, him, I'm going to manipulate you. I'm going to use you and you're not going to know any better. And then she does exactly what she just oh, the said. Subtle, the detail do. of her just uh, of collecting all the pens yeah. in the house. And then just sitting in the car staring oh, at him so that's good. such a good and it's i mean it's not the only time in the movie you see her do something really horrible just kind of detest how functional he is the thing that i always lose about the movie and that i love so much is the the question of the money in the trunk like that for for whatever reason Every single time I see the movie again, I miss the detail of the money in the trunk and how it motivates Teddy throughout the entire movie. And I just I guess I want to just give a shout out to Christopher Nolan. He does a lot of like asynchronous films and a lot of films where you by the end of the movie, you've discovered something that makes you need to revisit the entire film. And I have never seen uh, films like Christopher Nolan's films for needing to go back and rewatch to catch the subtleties of the performances because the actors know what's going on even when the characters don't. And it's the stuff that Joe Pagliano does here, knowing things that we don't know yet, is just so akin to what Christian Bale does in The Prestige with his character. I'm not going to give anything away on that one, but there are things that his character knows throughout the film that we don't find out till the end. But if you watch the film, once you know it, you can see it all in his performance. And it's just, it's so it's so brilliant. It's not just in the writing that Nolan makes these movies. It's in the way he draws he draws the actors to understand things before we understand them. Yeah, I saw this movie um, at the when it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival, which I think it actually its official premiere I think was at Venice, which is like a, a week earlier than Toronto. But this thing came out of nowhere. It was in the middle of like a contemporary the contemporary world cinema se- section or something that following was not a film at that point, which anybody anybody knew. People were just sort of it was a buzz magnet basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saw it in a, a public screening of the film. And um, the Q and A afterwards was unbelievable because people just like, what, what does this mean? What does this mean? They were just asking just practical questions, just trying to sort out their feelings about this movie. And you really felt at that at that moment that it was connecting. You know that it, that that it was a, a the type of puzzle that people were going to want to kind of come back to and 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 figure out. I mean, sometimes at Q and As, those questions can come across as a little belligerent. I mean, did you get the no, impression? No, not at all. No, it so was, people it was were just like, people it was just were on like, board. It was, like, it was like, okay, what is this? What happened to this person? And because I mean, again, the movie is so so far ahead of its audience, and especially if you don't even really know what to expect. I mean, if you don't know what the what the conceit is, um, I mean, you're really far behind. So at the end, you're really you're just trying to get your head straight. And so that was what it was about. It was about him kind of trying to talk people through 
you know, the basic events that happened in the movie. I mean, if you go online and like just look up a memento, you'll still find a lot of people asking those questions. Mm-hmm. You know, what does this mean? How does it fit together? After rewatching it, do you guys still have lingering questions about about where pieces fit or what things mean? Are there any questions that you still have about who's telling the truth about what? Am I wrong to distrust Teddy when he says that he did get the guy? Uh, that he did kill the guy. That picture is really of him legitimately killing uh, after he killed the person who responsible for his wife's attack. You're certainly not alone in that. There is a, a definite thread of of internet thought that says it it is just another lie. It's just another manipulation. Mm-hmm. For me, I believe it not because the proof is so like overwhelming, but because it makes the best story. And uh, like for me, it that's really key to what makes Memento so like emotionally like trenchant and powerful is if that's just another lie, it's certainly plausible that it's just another lie. But to me, it would make the story less interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say it wouldn't make it more interesting for it to be. Yeah. Most of my lingering questions have to do with Teddy. And it's it's less that like I don't understand what happened and more just I want to know more about that um, just in terms of his motivation to manipulate Leonard this way like I think the assumption is that you know he's a crooked cop who's gotten caught up in the drug game and he's using Leonard as a tool to make some extra cash I guess but I've never quite been clear on all the logistics of the con and the you know Keith's question about which of his lies are (laughs) our truths uh is kind of kind of plays into that like and that's 100% the point you're not supposed to know what Teddy's real motivation is because Leonard doesn't know and he will never know. And even if he did know, he wouldn't remember. But it, it's just that character is so interesting and I I want to know more. Yeah, some part of me does kind of want the, like, there there have been edited together, like, uh, synchronous versions of this movie. One of the, uh, like, the limited edition DVD had a version of the movie, like, cut together in chronological order. And I've never seen it. It doesn't interest me much. I watched about 40 minutes of it, and it's really boring. Oh. It's not a fun experience at all. Now, see, when... <laughs> it's like you with Spinal Tap last, last time. Yeah. <laughs> you're, just, you're just watching uh, alternative versions of movies that don't work. Well, the thing is, I mean... You've got to have hobbies. When Ebert <laughs> said that the movie didn't have any rewatch value, his, the point, and he wasn't the only one, the point that those critics were making from what I've read is that once you suss out the order of things, it's it's a fairly standard, uh, standard issue kind of mystery, and the mystery isn't interesting. And, I mean, I have... I don't know whether that's true. I haven't watched it that way. I have no problem with it. I mean, that's kind of like saying if you take away all of the segments that were shot in color, Wizard of Oz isn't a very interesting film. <laughs> you know, it's – you know, of course when you when you change everything fundamentally about the structure of the movie, it might become less interesting. <laughs> that's not really a knock against it. But my point was like I don't care about the synchronous version. I want the Joe Pagliano version, mm-hmm. like the what's he doing. Yeah. Because the thing that bugs me most about the movie is just the way Teddy always seems to be about two inches away from mm-hmm. him. I feel like... Hi, Eleni. <laughs> <laughs> He's so good. Yeah, you know, he really is. But I, like, I'm never entirely clear on how much time Leonard is losing because Teddy just keeps like popping up over his shoulder what seems like every five minutes. And I explain that away to myself by understanding that there's like a large amount of money in his car that 
that Teddy is just like lurking in the background, hoping to get his hands on. But it it's still it's a little distracting to me, just like how present he is. So I like I kind of brought up how how this film reminds me of the Prestige and just the the slightest bit of how it it emerges from the following. But I'm curious from the rest of you how this fits into Nolan's body of work for you. If you if you see other themes or ideas or like even stylistic choices here uh, that you see in other Nolan movies. I mean, theme wise, I mean, in, Inception yeah. and and uh, Interstellar to some extent too about how our thoughts and and our aspirations aren't really our own. Uh, are, all kind of uh, kind of stem out of this. I think that, I feel like the prestige is the is the companion to this movie. Um, I think Inception can can. Think? I think there's a lot of strong links. Yeah, to it. I mean, and, I think I think, that, I think he's interested in insomnia. Actually, to some degree, I think Nolan is interested in how the mind works, particularly when it's under extreme duress. And I, I also think that he has a lot of fun in his role as a magician. You know, somebody who can pull the rug out from under, under the audience and, and just really play around with plot, like actual plot, just really put the audience in kind of an unstable place, but still have the the plotting completely under control. It's, everything is very well thought through. I mean, especially Memento and The Prestige, just like there's just nothing out of place in those movies. And uh, returning to both of them, to me, it's really almost the same experience with Memento and, and The Prestige, where it's just like, I, where they're very complicated films on their surface, and then when you watch them re- repeatedly, there's this massive emotional undercurrent that kind of comes powering through. Yeah, so those films are really connected for me, Memento and The Prestige. And, and those two movies, Memento and Prestige, also make really good use of the unreliable narrator mm-hmm. and kind of you know non-chronological structure. But um, going back to the connection to Inception, and this is a theme that is in a lot of Nolan's film to some extent, but the idea of reality and what's real versus what we tell ourselves to maintain that reality. Like, There's a direct link to me between Leonard's tattoos and the totems that everyone carries in Inception, this mm. reminder of what is real, you know, and in Inception, you know, there's a choice between living in a dream world and living in reality, which is basically a choice Leonard makes as well. So again, the prestige also has those themes in it, but I think there is a very strong link to Inception in that way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think especially in um, in The Prestige, there is that, particularly with Hugh Jackman's character, there's kind of a conscious choice to live the illusion. Well, in a way, they're both living the illusion. They're just living the illusion in very different ways. And I think Hugh Jackman makes the greater sacrifice in terms of consciously choosing to live the image that he wants to project as opposed to acknowledging like the terrible, terrible cost of that. But I think you're right. I think Inception ends with uh, with somebody making the exact same decision that Leonard makes here kind of to to consciously choose what to believe and then like live out that belief regardless of what it costs him and regardless of how it would appear to anybody else any Batman parallels <laughs> oh yeah I mean trauma yeah. trauma create mm-hmm. trauma leading to character you know I mean that's, that's, that's... wait you think that Bruce Bruce Wayne is traumatized <laughs> maybe, maybe a little okay, there I, go the pearls does anyone know how his <laughs> Does anyone know how his parents died? I can't remember. I, I someday I hope a movie brings that to us, like in some sort of. I'm sorry, Keith. You were saying yeah. no. I, that's as far as I, I can take that one right now. But given some more thought, I'm sure I could go a little further. I think of the Batman films as being this discrete trilogy, if only because 
Nolan has an eye on the modern world um, and and you know global strife and politics. Um, there's a there's an abstraction to Memento and the Prestige and Inception, and even an Interstellar that that I don't think is really shared by the Batman movies. And that's always made me less interested in them. And I mean, I've taken a lot of flack over the years for just not being impressed with Nolan's Batman movies. Let, but... let me raise a counterpoint here is the Nolan's Batman movies have Batman in them. <laughs> wow. A lot of things have Batman in them that, that's are, true. Not, that are not tremendous. There is actually a a scale of like Batman because there's so very much Batman in the world. And I, on some level, I feel like my objection to the Nolan Batman movies is I feel like other people could have made those movies, whereas I'm not sure anybody else out there could have made the prestige or memento mm. or even following for that matter i just for me those the batman movies are him moving from like who else could have gotten away with inception like who else out there has that level of trust in the audience's ability to assemble a whole lot of complicated data going on in a whole series of time streams like into one coherent story i would make two points <laughs> <laughs> I've just been watching Scott okay. sit here formulate I make, this. I think, I think that we take for granted how far out on a limb Nolan was going with those Batman movies because because I think the the whole the notion the, the darkness that those films I- I embraced uh, was at that time new and is is now cliche. Uh, so now we kind of can look at these Batman films as being you know not that special, I guess. Uh, and the other point I would make about about it is that. Um, you know, because it's a franchise thing, you have a situation where a, a, a an auteur like Christopher Nolan is having to try to square his vision with this piece of studio entertainment. And and I think that you just end up with less than you would get if they're going to be focused on something like, like a memento or the prestige or, you know, perhaps in Ryan Johnson's case, like a brick or a... Or a uh, Brothers Bloom or, or or Looper, where it's so much one hundred percent the the filmmaker sensibility and not having to be factored into any other equation, I guess. I mean, that's certainly worth saying. Let's uh, let's loop back to Memento a little bit while we're here, yes. though. Um, can we talk a little about Leonard? I'm curious what you guys make of him, both him as a character and a, of Guy Pierce's performance. That turns out to be a really good segue from what we were just talking about. Um, this thought I had kind of stems from a line in Finding Dory about um, I forget who says I think. It's Marlon says something about how her condition gives her this power, this ability to kind of barrel through life. And I found myself thinking of Leonard this time in the context of a super a superhero or a super powered individual, like the way Teddy and Natalie use him to their own ends, kind of trading on his inability to remember or feel remorse for what he's done. It sort of reminded me a lot of the Winter Soldier. Hmm. Um, tie it back to something we just talked about. Like, there's no doubt that Leonard is a pretty capable killer for a supposed, you know, insurance investigator. <laughs> uh, he's obviously picked up some lethal skills over however long he's been doing this. And as I stated, we never do really find out how long this has been going on. Like, he's definitely a victim and it's easy to read him that way, but that's not all he is. He has a power, he has a destructive power. And that moment where he burns the photo and writes the note on Teddy's photo is sort of him acknowledging that power. And that was just something I came away from it with this time. And I attribute that directly to this very odd pairing of Finding Dory and Memento. Yeah, there are some really interesting moments in Memento where I feel like the the subtext is spelled out as text. And in a in a forward movie, you know, a conventionally shaped movie, it would be way, way too much. But here it's like 
a series of little hooks that you desperately need to hang on to as you're kind of skidding your way down this story. And one of the big ones is where Teddy turns to Lenny and says, you're not a killer. That's why you're so good at it. Like, I could see that line being really overplayed in a different kind of movie. But here, it's kind of a light light switch coming on moment where you realize that it it isn't just luck that <laughs> makes him so good at what he's doing. It's that it's so unexpected. You know, much like with Dory, people underestimate him, people take him for granted. But he's, I mean, because he's in this space where nothing really has consequences, at least that he can remember, he's capable of some really surprising violence. One, one note I would say, you know, because we are talking about uh, a neo-noir here, is that Leonard is a standard flawed noir hero i mean and i i don't think there's any mistake that he is an insurance man or was an insurance man because that is the occupation that fred mcmurray's character in uh, double indemnity uh has so and of course you know the the uh, character played by carrie and, and moss natalie is his uh barbara stanwick right is um somebody who really has it over on him from the start, I mean, there's, there's a, a, a just like Fred McMurray has is absolutely helpless to Barbara Stanwyck's machinations. You know, Leonard has nothing on, on Natalie. Natalie has has the drop on him from the beginning and manipulates him uh, pretty brilliantly and diabolically. And also, it's the noir device of someone who has no business being in this seedy underworld, being drawn into it by by a moment, either um, you know of his choosing or or sometimes beyond his control. And and here it's beyond his control, uh, and then increasingly even less in his control. And there's also just kind of the classic noir element of like there's a criminal out there who doesn't realize the forces that are being mustered against him by the woman who is using somebody else to to get at him. You know, that's also just a very kind of the third part of the great noir triumvirate. But uh, <laughs> Roger Ebert has a list of uh, 10 things that are essential to, to noir. And Should one we of the really ones... trust Roger Ebert right now, <laughs> Tasha? <laughs> Probably not, uh, especially since the, since the list itself, among other things, uh, seems to think that noir has to be American. There are a bunch of things in that, that list that do not – it's not the style of internet list we know today. It's really like a collection of thoughts that happen to have numbers. But somewhere in the middle of it, he says that one of the things essential to noir is that a noir film at no point deludes the audience into thinking a happy ending is coming. And that just really struck me given that we know how this movie ends from the opening scene. At the same time, did you guys register this as a noir film as you were watching it? It really didn't occur to me until the pieces came together. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I kind of did. I mean, neo noir, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cousin of the classic films. Sorry, it, it's almost too grimy and modern. To when you think of like neo noir, you think like homage to classic noir, and it has those elements to it too. But uh, um, there's a, there's a stickiness <laughs> to this film that it seems a little not not quite noir like. But as we're talking about Leonard as a character, part of what I'm getting at there is I'm wondering how you guys relate to somebody who is at times so vulnerable and at times so aggressive and violent, who's so unpredictable from scene to scene. Like, I'm wondering how you guys relate to him as character and how you relate to Guy Pierce's performance. I think vulnerable is the key word. I mean, that's that's our connection to him. I mean, he has been something terrible has happened to him, and he is. I mean, what could be more vulnerable than not being able to remember, you know, anything that happened five minutes ago, um, and having to develop the, this system and having predatory, 
characters not not just not just carrie ann moss and uh joe penitliano but but you know the the guy bert Bert, you know (laughs) bert with the two rooms and everything i mean like the only people that protect him are the people that are preying off of him and they're kind of just keeping him alive because they can use him you know the the, it's otherwise he'd be completely helpless i would think you know we we get these flashbacks with his wife i mean his last memories i think we can trust those to be real memories with his wife and then he's got this bag but what about of... the pinch slash insulin shot oh right yeah oh, i mean there's God. the whole like you if trust the... some of them to be memories. <laughs> <laughs> if the if the insulin story is true then all of the memories we're seeing of her her all of the other memories we're seeing of her death aren't true yeah going back to lingering questions that's that's another thing is like how sammy jenk the sammy jenkins story really resolves there and and what aspect of it is Leonard and what aspect of it is this Sammy Jenkins character? I mean, well, per if- Teddy Jenkins was faking it and had, I believe, mm-hmm. didn't have a wife at all, right? So but that, that's right, Teddy. And, per and, Teddy, and, yeah. yeah. And and Leonard's like, no, she didn't have diabetes. My wife didn't have diabetes, but maybe she did. Because I think his wife had diabetes. Yeah, because you get that subliminal flash of him sitting in the mental hospital as well. Right. It all goes back to the idea of reality. But going back to Leonard and Guy Pierce's performance, like for something that struck me this time is for as much trauma as this guy has endured and for as heavy the stuff he's going through he's not a brooding character which is like maybe why it didn't necessarily register as noir to me because i I do associate a sort of broodiness with a noir protagonist and like leonard is i mean he's obviously a pretty serious guy but he does have a sort of likableness to him especially when he interacts with people for to him the first time um and that kind of goes back to the sammy jenkins story and that little anecdote about you know the the look of recognition and the the faking that the you know someone and there is sort of this persona he puts on of i have this condition you know that the line that he keeps going to and like he's kind of funny and he's kind of charming and i think a lot of that just stems from guy pierce and this certain quality he has it's unquantifiable but um you know i don't want to say that leonard is like a fun character necessarily but he isn't as heavy as i feel like that character could be you know uh you you just completely nailed something that was sort of in my notes that i'd forgotten about which is again when he explains how sammy jenkins would fake recognition because he felt that it got him a pat on the head because, yeah, because it got him a pat on the head. I felt like that was another one of those lines that might have been too broad in another kind of story, but here just kind of hooks you in because it suddenly explains a lot of what Leonard is doing. And one of the things that that's that Christopher Nolan performance again, where rewatching it just brings up like all these little really fantastic grace notes. I love what Guy Pierce does here whenever he meets somebody new and kind of fakes knowing them. Like there's so often before that I have a condition, there's that kind of moment of warmth or where he nods the whatever they say to him first. And you can see him like mentally kind of navigating they're they're acting like they know me. Apparently, I know them. I should react. All right, this isn't going anywhere good. I need to, to tell them about my condition. And you can see all of these things just like play through his face in just like the tiniest little ways. I really love Guy Pierce in this movie. Yo, Lenny, I thought you split for good. Well, things change. So I see. My name's Teddy. I guess I've told you about my condition. Only every time I see you. <laughs> Come on, I'll buy you lunch. Have I told you about Sammy Jenkins? Mm. Yeah. I'm sick of hearing about the guy. What about John G? 
You think he's still here? Who? Johnny G, the guy you're looking for. I mean, that's why you haven't left town, am I right? Maybe. Leonard, look, you have to be very careful. Why? The other day you mentioned that maybe somebody was trying to set you up, get you to kill the wrong guy. Oh, well, I go on facts, not recommendations, but thank you. Lenny, you can't trust a man's life to your little notes and pictures. Why not? Because your notes could be unreliable. Memory's unreliable. Ah, oh, please. No, 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 really. No, Memory's I... not perfect. It's not even that good. Ask the police. Eyewitness testimony is unreliable. Matt, the cops don't catch a killer by sitting around remembering stuff. Right. They I, collect I, facts. That's not what I'm they make notes and they draw conclusions. Facts, not memories. That's how you investigate. I know. It's what I used to do. Look, memory can change the shape of a room. It can change the color of a car. And memories can be distorted. They're just an interpretation. They're not a record. And they're irrelevant if you have the facts. I'm amazed both by, by Pantoliano, who's who's just really entertaining and, and uh, charming and funny and really menacing at the same time. But Carrie Ann Moss is so slippery in this movie. She seems so sympathetic at first. And like the whole, she will help you because she's lost somebody too. You know, it's like this, oh, she's lost somebody too. She's going to help him. And I buy it. You know, I, I've seen the movie before. And I don't have this condition. Uh, but but man, but when she turns, that turn is just just amazing. It's, uh, it's like she turns into Linda Ferretino in the last sedan. All of a sudden, those are those are tight, pointy, high shoes to fill. Let me ask you this: Has Carrie Ann Moss ever been better than this? I don't think so. But then I don't know that she's had as many great opportunities since then, Um, or before that. The Matrix. I mean, she's great in the Matrix, but it's it is it is a. uh, there's a lot of posing in that in that yeah. role. It's a very it's a very narrow character, and she's really good in it. But it doesn't require a lot of stretching on her part. Yeah. And I would say the same for her and Jessica Jones. Right. You know, there's like when she's called upon to do posing and coldness, she's really good at it. But I I haven't seen anything else that she's in that requires the range and the commitment that she shows here. I love the writing too in the in the scene where she just lets him have it because I I, I don't think it's that profane a film until we get to that point but she just really the dialogue suddenly gets very uh harsh um and uh she she really bears into that role i mean and uh and she does so when she's you know delivering uh him his beer as well <laughs> uh she's really s- something in this movie I, and i also really like uh steven Tobolowsky and that whole Sammy Jenkins thing, uh, which 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 is basically really my main takeaway from the movie in life, because that is uh, the insulin for me is is is, my, is dog food. I feed, <laughs> I feed my I tend to feed my dog at least uh, at least two or three times more than I should because uh, I forget that I've fed her before. Uh, so uh, so my, uh, dog food is is my insulin. But I, I am constantly thinking of that that character in my everyday life. <laughs> Wow! I every time I see Iris from now on, I'm just going to think of Iris as uh, as saying it's time for her shot, yeah. and by shot she means bowl full of food. Yeah. She does. She plays the role amazingly well. The do- the, she she will pretend like she has not eaten, which will con- convince me to feed her more than once. I'm going to ask you guys: Has Iris ever had a better, more complicated role than the dog lying to Scott about how often she's gotten fed? She's brilliant at it. Absolutely. It's a tour de force performance by that cute little dog. 
Well, that seems like a perfect place to wrap up and uh, and go into audience feedback. We're going to pass the mic to the listeners for a little while. Um, we got some feedback in response to our last double feature on Popstar and Spinal Tap. Uh, Scott, would you like to kick us off? Uh, sure. Uh, a listener named Keith, not Phipps. No, no this isn't you. Okay. Uh, he writes, I may be way off base on this, but does it bother anyone else when a film seems to be satirizing or parodying a specific cultural type or figure? It inevitably includes people who are basically the reason for the satire. Adam Levine is in the top three of pop figures that come to mind when I think of Connor for real, and The Voice seems to be interested in factory-producing stars in the mold of Connor. So when I see a clip of Andy Samberg participating in an episode of The Voice, I am left wondering if the judges and contestants feel like they're part of the joke or the butt of the joke, or were they even aware a joke was going on? This also applies to the cast of Idiocracy. Dak Shepard, Luke Wilson, and Justin Long are all responsible for entertainment on the level of what is parodied in Idiocracy. True that. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it applies to Adam Sandler and the joke movies and funny people uh, and Sasha Baron Cohen and his comedic output, etc. That's a pretty good point. Yeah, that is a good point. And you know what it immediately made me think of is that uh, the Zoolander sequel was announced by um, Ben Stiller and uh, Owen Wilson walking in Paris Fashion Week as their characters. And it's like, wait, this is a movie that's about making fun of everybody who's attending or participating in this function. Why would they participate in this this particular lampooning, I guess? Well, I, I would say that... Adam Sandler and Funny People, that was indeed a, a direct sort of piece of self-deprecation there, uh, mock, mocking some of the dumb things that he's made in his career. It uh, kind of felt almost beyond, it almost felt like you know, sort of self-excoration in some mm-hmm. ways, too. And, and I, would, uh, I think I would have had a lot more respect to be like, you know what? And that's all, and now I'm not going to make any more movies like that. Yeah. So now I'll return to my home planet. Yeah, he seems to have doubled down instead. Adam yeah, Sandler was an alien? Cool. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it does seem like these these promotional objects because it doesn't really bother me when like Michael Bolton turns up in Captain Jack Sparrow kind of making fun of his image because or any of the guest stars that appear on Ricky Gervais's extras like making fun of their own celebrity because that is like they're in on a joke that they're creating and exaggerating. But when it comes to these like promotional things like what Keith is talking about, like Andy Samberg being on The Voice, that becomes like this really strange collusion between the the object of the joke and and celebrity like it's it's basically just about like buying into something that might boost their profile possibly at the expense of their dignity i'm not sure i will say though that's something the lonely island has done kind of from the beginning and that's something that happens on saturday night live all the time you know where where they come from so i honestly it doesn't bother me and i think it's easy to just kind of brush it off as self-congratulatory, you know, on the part of these stars. But I think when you are a performer and you, you spend your life playing a public role, eventually you do kind of get to the point where you recognize the divide between you as a person and that public role. And I think maybe that is where the the impulse of a lot of these stars to kind of lampoon their own image comes from. However true all that might be, I would not trade um, Mariah Carey uh, talking right. about I'm so humble and <laughs> for anything. You know, it's, right. it's a gag that uh, whether it's, it makes her look good or not, uh, it's a funny joke. And I think there's some distinctions that really need to be made here between satire and parody uh, because, the you know, the, the pop star is not Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> 
you know, it is it, so anybody who's participating in Pop Star is engaging in affectionate self parody, which is not that harsh. They're not they're not burning themselves, and the film is not weakened by them making light of themselves in the same way that, say, a Doctor Strange love would be. Um, as far as the idiocracy comparison goes, that's just an assessment of those three guys' career: Dax Shepard and Luke Wilson and Justin Long, just I having mean, to take they, roles. They've that are all kind of done some good stuff. They have, but they have. I, I'm explaining the level. I'm explaining the letter. I'm not. I'm not uh, I mean, making every, judgment. Uh, the artist who has not made a piece of crap along the way in their careers is few and far between so i I you know yes i bristle at that because i actually really liked Dax shepherd and luke (laughs) wilson and justin long i like all of them but how do you feel about that movie about the butt where we don't know whose butt it is or why it's farting (laughs) an american classic (laughs) all right well genevieve i think you had some uh some specific opinions about the (laughs) next letter uh coming up will you want to kick us off by reading this sure josh from ohio says this I laugh just as hard at pop star as everyone else, but I think the longevity and cult classic success of the film is still up in the air. We're talking about selfies, TMZ, and popular music here, pieces of our culture that could very easily disappear in a few years and hurt the film's long-term relevance. Dewey Cox works because the genres it is skewering have stood the test of time. With Spinal Tap, hard rock and heavy metal are still prevalent in our culture. But if Christopher Guest had made a New Kids on the Block-esque mockumentary after Spinal Tap, I don't know if we would still be talking about it now. If Popstar was a less funny movie where the jokes didn't land, I think we'd be criticizing The Lonely Island for their choice of comedic targets. Eventually, our culture will evolve beyond the things this movie is skewering. Hopefully, the film can survive that evolution. It will survive that evolution. Uh, you don't like this at all. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Josh. I, I, I'm just going to have to give this a big old... <laughs> <laughs> um, if it helps, I will echo your... Yeah, I kind of do, too. Yeah. Um, first of all... We, we, pops... we still like Josh, though. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. Thanks, we, we, thanks for gonna... listening, Josh. <laughs> thanks, and yeah. thanks for writing we, We're in. trying to alienate the, yeah. the listeners but that we have. First, I will say, if Popstar was a less funny movie where the jokes didn't land, we'd be criticizing it is obvious. If it was a less funny movie, it would be a worse movie. And mm-hmm. sh- sure, the, the funniness of the movie is off the table here. I think... The idea of like that a movie doesn't hold up because it skewers timely topics is profoundly off base. And, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, you point to Dewey Cox, all of those genres were popular music at some time. I, I, I wish you hadn't said we're talking about selfies, TMZ, and popular music here because the disdain that is uh, often leveled at popular music is just kind of one of my big bugaboos. And, I, I don't think the idea that pop music is inherently stupid or unworthy of attention is useful in any way, uh, critically speaking. And I'll just point to Josie and the Pussycats as something that has really stood the test of time and being incredibly steeped in a specific, a very specific time period full of very silly stuff that has no relationship to our current modern culture I also think I, just oh. specificity in humor yes. is part yes. of what gives yeah. it gives it teeth you know part of why i appreciate this movie down the line is like oh yeah that's what people were all uh, into in, in 2016 yeah too, i mean know? it becomes a historical document and we we often praise both documentaries and features i mean if you go back and watch the original shaft like that is that movie is maybe no longer relevant to like what new york looks like today or what it feels like to be like a black man in today's america because it's a very specific portrait of its time. That what's that's what makes it wonderful. Yes. That's much, what makes it so much fun to revisit older movies that have like a specific take on their time and like what it felt like to be in a place at a time. Yeah, like Jungle Fever, for example. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, I, mean, I am I am very much. 
uh, I would say dubious of the criticism uh, that a film is quote unquote dated. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I to the point where I don't even like the word. I don't like to use yeah, it. I I just, will pre- I will actually profess I don't understand what dated means because because everything. Let, is let, well, let me time. try to exp- let me try to. I think maybe you could say that people just will flat out not get what the movie is on about. They will not get the reference. Like they like things that we are parroting now will not be remembered or not. Uh, will not stand the test of time and then we'll be we'll be like what what is this movie even on about but that's not sometimes that can even work i mm-hmm. had a i had a writer uh ask me the other day um what is it what is airplane parodying anyway yeah you know it is mm-hmm. it is parodying all the airport movies and specifically parodying zero hour which is this 50s thing that's basically the same plot down to the you know who are the fish who are the chicken all, all that nonsense but you know the fact that he didn't know didn't make the, the movie any less funny yeah i've I never mean, seen any of those movies and i think airplane's hilarious yeah, M- mike d'angelo wrote a piece for the dissolve about yeah. that very yeah. Yeah, that was a fun phenomenon yeah. yeah and i would just like to say before we close out our uh, skewering of Joshua <laughs> Ohio, that i would love a christopher guest movie about new kids on the black-esque group yeah yeah <laughs> uh, hey 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 josh Go Buckeyes. <laughs> I'm a big Ohio State fan. I'm trying to win you back after, after you raking you over the coals. Yeah, it just, I mean, it, it seems to me, I, I absolutely understand what you're saying. What you're saying is that these are like very small and ephemeral things. And it seems like a waste of, of time and attention and energy to make fun of something that might be here today, gone tomorrow. But the fact that it might be gone tomorrow is what is going to make this film interesting in, in 20 years. I mean, in 20 years, there'll be, you know, 20 years worth of other movies competing with it. So it may not be something that's like revisited on the level of Citizen Kane, but it'll be fun to go back and, and see what obsessed us like for about 15 minutes in, in 2016. You know, leave it to other films to tell us what obsessed us in the second half of 2016 or in the entirety of 2017 or back in 1970 you know that's that's why having a history of films and having podcasts like this that dig into the history of films is fun um there's actually there's a lot of concern this week about pop stars specific flavor of humor in general uh keith you want to read us yet another letter from someone who enjoyed pop star but found its particular flavor of meta-ness problematic i will if i can find one and oh here's one right right here it's from it's from ben uh, who writes, while I really enjoyed Popstar, I did have one major complaint. Spinal Tap maintains a consistent reality, but Popstar doesn't. The Lonely Island style conflicts with the modern concert doc parody format. This is perhaps most exemplified in my favorite song from the film, Equal Rights. The song is a perfect parody of Malcolm Moore's Same Love, where the singer has to let the audience know he's not gay, even though he's singing a gay rights anthem. But the fictional music video in the film plays too much like Lonely Island's SNL videos. The stars are aware the song is ridiculous and react against it. And why would Connor allow a video where the extras and featured artist Pink react negatively to his words? It undercuts what is actually a very believable bad song. It's almost as if Lonely Island can't shake their formula, even when it contradicts the purposes of the scene. Some songs, like the catchphrase verse, feel like the kind of parody Spinal Tap does so well, but others feel like good songs on a comedy album, not comedically bad songs. Did you notice this? And do you think the Spinal Tap style of sticking to a single reality and tone is the right approach, or is it okay to do parody in pop stars' freewheeling Zucker Abrams style? 
even for a very specific send up. Um, I guess my first thought is I didn't, you are right. And I didn't notice it at all. And it's because if it works, just go with it. I mean, it, to me, to me, it just, uh, it worked for this movie. I didn't think about it. I was not removed from the film by this at all. You know, I didn't, I have apparently never heard Macklemore's same love and was completely unaware that I was hearing a parody of it, which takes me back to Josh from Ohio. This film is already so dated. This film is so yeah, dated. Macklemore is not going to stand the test of time for God's sake. <laughs> that I did not realize that that was a parody and it didn't make it any less funny to me. And like, I, I think that some of these jokes work fine out of context. No, the, the inconsistencies didn't make much difference to me. And in that specific example of uh, the equal rights song, it's because I think what we're seeing is meant to be just an indication of exactly how, uh, how arrogant and how out of touch Connor for real is like he literally does not notice probably even in the editing room he didn't notice that everybody in that video is rolling their eyes at him like the fact that the the eye rolls made it in the video is meant to tell you something about his character I think that is actually a consistent part of the story yeah and we talked in the show about how Popstar is very much a lonely island vehicle and it is a very pure distillation of what they do and and you you are right that your your observation here is 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 correct that it does you know break the reality of of the movie but we've also been primed for that by a decade or more of lonely island their style of humor and so i i, I think that's why it didn't bother me and I did kind of just chalk it up to this more as you call it freewheeling Zucker Abrams style where it's just sort of a comedy is comedy which it's not necessarily about you know maintaining a consistent reality and part of comedy is is comedy I mean at the end you say is the spinal tap style the right approach or is it okay to do this other kind of parody and the answer to that is whatever's funny you know there are no hard and fast rules there there's definitely not a rule that says comedy has to be done in this one specific way or it doesn't work yeah, I didn't notice. If I didn't notice, I probably would have sided with Ben on this. Uh, uh, but, uh, but, but of course, you explained that maybe you know the context of them shooting this uh, uh, video would be a bunch of people laughing at it or finding it ridiculous. And because and, it was his big Connor. failure, it, it wasn't like one of his yeah, hits. You know, it yeah. was the song that turned the tide. So it it makes sense in that yeah, context, yeah. I guess. But but I think I think if it is if if it were as Ben. S- says says it were if uh, if we couldn't explain that away then then yeah I think it would break from the reality of of the film in a way that I would probably object but I I I didn't pick up on that at all. I mean we talked a lot in that podcast about kind of how the energy of the film and the the mile a minute jokes propels it past any bits that don't work. I think that I think you're right. I think there are bits that don't work or don't necessarily fit and you kind of have to look at the overall like feeling of the film and whether it works for you. Or, you know, if it's just a matter of like with any anthology or with any series of of jokes, you're kind of discarding, mentally discarding the ones that don't land for you. I support equal rights. (laughs) (laughs) Chicken wings. (laughs) nunchucks nunchucks everybody all right as always we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll go looking for Dory and we'll maybe watch out for Nemo in the process. 
Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, will we lie to ourselves to make ourselves happy? In your case, listeners, we will. We will.